Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, June 24th. We begin with a look at new research on the effectiveness of wearing a mask to ward off COVID-19. We speak with a researcher behind the study who says donning a mask in public could actually save your life. In the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement, companies are trying to create a more diverse workplace. We speak with a professor of HR management who explains why any effective change must be implemented at every level of an organization. Canadians have become less tolerant when it comes to taking risks involving innovation over the past couple of years. We hear details of a new report on why keeping an eye on the downward trend is important and the impact it can have on both businesses and social services. Is Canada being targeted by China in the form of interference campaigns? We speak to a national online investigative journalist, Sam Cooper, about what he's uncovered. And finally, we head overseas to catch up with Redmond Shannon, Global News Europe correspondent, for a COVID-19 update. Redmond gives us the latest on the time frame to open the borders of Europe to international travel and why U.S. citizens could remain barred. 609 on the morning news. Wearing face masks in public can reduce the prevalence of COVID-19 by reducing the spread of respiratory droplets. An analysis of mortality rates in 169 countries indicates that wearing face masks may also save lives. With all the details, we're joined by Professor of Clinical Ophthalmology at the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute, uh, part of the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, Craig McEwen. Good morning to you, Craig. Good morning. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, you are in Miami and here in Canada, we have the option to wear masks for the most part. When they're mandatory, we put them on. But I think there's a, you know, a level of comfortability for those who want to wear them. Uh, But now we're hearing, according to research and according to what you're about to tell us, that uh, we're better to wear them when it comes to our safety, isn't it? I certainly think that's true, yes. Okay. So how so? I mean, we heard before that, you know, we have to worry about these droplets that can be airborne. How serious is it uh, as far as uh, keeping us safe? This virus is turning out to be extremely contagious, much of it probably through aerosol. And what we looked at was a change in mortality rate around the world with pooled data that came from a central source, but each comes from the individual countries. And there was a flattening of the curve when masks were being worn. Uh, One of our co-authors was Canadian, in fact, from the University of Toronto. And um, the point of all of this is two types of masks. One type will shield others from your droplets. And then the N95 type mask actually shields you some from the droplets from other people. So at work, I will typically in the hospital wear an N95 mask, but on the street, I always wear a standard surgical mask, which if I sneeze, cough, or even talk, will reduce the number of droplets dispersed to my friends and neighbors. So it's to protect protect others with that type of mask. And that's very important in stemming this pandemic. And yet, Craig, I mean, you know, masks are not mandatory in most countries. And now we're hearing in some places, you know, they're trying to uh, decrease the, the the amount of space between people from two meters to one and a yes. half to one meters in, in some cases. So this will be interesting. As you can tell from the news, we are all learning as we go. Mm-hmm. What we think one week is different the next week. So as we do this and as gatherings become closer and closer, we may very well find that there's a spike in the number of cases, and I'm afraid that's probably what will happen, but no one really knows until they do it. Uh, Mandatory masks are prevalent in some countries and seem to have a very positive effect. If it were up to me and my family, we all wear our mask at all times, but not everyone around us does, which for the protection of me, I wish they would and my family and my friends. 
Craig, it's interesting because I, I think that I can say, speak for all of us, that we never thought we'd know so much about masks uh, as we've learned in the past few months. And we know there's several different types. The cloth Correct. ones that stripe, uh, just strap over the face, we've heard about that N95, so many different variations. So within this research, is there a type of mask that you focused on? Well, there's not a brand. The masks that we were used were most likely not N95. So typically the N95 will be used perhaps in industrial work, but then in hospital work, it's used in contaminated areas. It has a better seal around the mouth, the mouth and nose, so there's almost there should be no leakage, and it filters particles as small as 0.03 microns. Interesting, the virus is smaller than that, but the virus travels in droplets, so the droplets are probably bigger than that threshold, and therefore, again, it should and has been shown to reduce droplets that are aerosolized. And there's some notable graphs for people that are interested online where you can see what happens when you sneeze, when you talk, when you cough, um, in terms of the dispersal of these droplets. And they may go out about six meters. So the spacing is uh, a big question. Craig, and that's impractical at six meters for yeah. most things. Curious about, I mean, we know obviously the mouth, the nose, that's where the virus is getting in. As an ophthalmologist, what about the eyes? Is there any concern there? There is, and uh, many of my colleagues and myself included will wear a face mask as well in a hospital setting. I don't do it out in the streets, although I do see a few people on the streets. Has, has there been much research in, in that field yet? Not as much, no, except that the original doctor in China who died was an ophthalmologist, and there was some thought that it could have been respiratory, but also the surface of the eye may be a route by which we can catch this disease. Mm. So the cautious people will wear face masks. I always have glasses on at least. Are some people shocked that an ophthalmologist is behind research like this? I know we, we've talked on this program yeah. early on about the transmission, but are people <laughs> shocked when you mention what you've been doing? Yes, well, let me tell you about the co-authors. The co-authors are superb epidemiologists, and it turns out that two of us happen to be also pediatric ophthalmologists. Uh, my role has really been just to provide clinical advice. The real skill is from Dr. Ng from the University of Toronto, Dr. Pratt, Dr. Leffler, the lead author, and Dr. Grabowski uh, from Poland. Um, and I'm sort of riding along telling them some things with clinical correlation, but these are the guys that really looked at the math carefully and on a daily basis watched the worldwide occurrence of this disorder, this disorder, which by country. And so it wasn't mortality by country. What we did is mortality by population, which is probably more relevant. So a thousand cases in the United States versus a thousand cases in Canada would be quite different in terms of the individual uh, risk. Craig, I can tell you for sure there's at least one of our texters sitting at home just ready and waiting to say, you people are just fear-mongering. You need to stop this. Thoughts on Correct. that? <laughs> well, I would disagree, but uh, that's what we're here for. We disagree. And the Canadians would do it quite politely, I suspect. Not everyone else would. <laughs> Sometimes, yes. <laughs> Sometimes, but yes. obviously Denver. from your research, you're finding that it is something we still need to be concerned about. Oh, we think so. And we live by what we've studied. Um, whether the governments have mandates to do this, and this is a much more complex political question, but certainly from a public health stand standpoint, I think there will be general agreement among experts, and I point to our own Dr. Fauci here in the United States, that um, mask wearing is a wise thing to do, and particularly now because it seems like as we relax, we're seeing, certainly in South Florida, we're experiencing now a spike in cases. So how frustrated is it that you have this information with you um, that you know and you would do this for your family, but uh, the protocols aren't being uh, put into place, not only in your state, but nationwide? 
Yeah, they're not strict protocols. So I'll occasionally say something on the elevator, or I'll just get off the elevator if someone's on there with, without a mask. Um, yeah, it's it's a very personal and hot item, and you know how much is the government able to enforce this? Well, some governments enforce it very strictly with mandated jail time and or fines. Your government and my government do not do that. It's funny, Americans are just so different from Canadians in terms of, you know, these are our rights and freedoms, you can't make us, so we're not wearing a mask. And that's kind of what we see it in, in most states, too. Yes, and if you get on the Johns Hopkins University, it's coronavirus, J-H-U, edu with a dot between them or just do johns hopkins coronavirus you will see worldwide maps of red dots where the coronavirus is i was just looking at it about 10 minutes ago canada is pretty sparse uh the united states is pretty confluent there may be something uh, to be learned there excellent well thank you so much uh, for uh, sharing your uh, study with us craig very happy to do that. Thank you. It's nice yeah. to be in Canada. Good to, uh, good to have you. That is uh, Craig McEwen, Professor of Clinical Ophthalmology at the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute. International uh, analysis uh, that he's done here. We appreciated his time. It is 617. Time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Main streets highlight 20-foot sidewalks and integrated bike paths. It's 6.43 now, and companies have invested billions of dollars into training to try and weed out bias, but it really has little effect on actual behavior. So how should companies develop a more inclusive and diverse workplace? To discuss, we're joined this morning by Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior and HR Management, Sonia Kang. Good morning, Sonia. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. So what are your thoughts on this? How best can a company create an inclusive and a diverse space for workers? So I think that right now we've seen companies coming up to this point with a real focus on diversity. So diversity is basically everything that companies are doing to get a diverse set of people through the door. Um, that can be anything from hiring. It can be their recruitment processes. Um, but what's happening is that once they actually have this diverse workforce, they're kind of falling down on the inclusion side, which is all of the things that we do within companies to make people, you know, feel good about where they work, um, to make them feel like they belong and to make them feel like they want to stick around. So there hasn't been enough emphasis on the inclusion side. So it ends up being that you get these employees that you work really hard to recruit via all of your diversity initiatives, but then they leave to work somewhere else. So I think to make that diverse, the work of diversity actually matter, Companies need to be focusing much more on inclusion side processes, like how they can actually make people feel like they belong in that space once they're there. So, so introducing the new employees is one thing, uh, but uh, breaking up maybe a culture or uh, changing the way work uh, was done in the past and, and that interaction, would that be something we'd look at? Absolutely. So I think it really starts with that question about what is the culture and who is welcome in that space. Um, Often we see inclusion conversations or inclusion practices, sorry, starting with these kinds of conversations about, you know, how do you feel here? Um, and it really requires companies to listen to employees and create a space with them where they feel like they can be open and honest and have these conversations about race and racism at work, which have often been very difficult to have. So it means that you need to open up this conversation, open up the space for people to tell you, you know, what's working about this culture, what's not mm -hmm. working about this culture, and really listen and take their perspective um, to see what you need to change. So really, I mean, it's not just about checking off a box because you're supposed to. It's about going to the people who are on the ground doing the work yeah. and finding out what they think, what they want, and what they need. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, the checking off the box analogy is like basically what happens. 
So basically what happens is that diversity and inclusion have sort of been treated like this separate project that needs to happen, right? So we have our anti-bias training day. We have our maybe like cultural foods day. Like we have these little things. We check them off the box and we say, okay, we've done the work now. Um, But you actually haven't done the work because you haven't actually talked to the people about what's going on. And so, you know, diversity really needs to be treated like you would treat any other organizational goal. Like it has to be embedded into all aspects of your um, organization, not just these special one-off things. And I would say, especially, you know, we were in your intro, you were talking about the billions of dollars that companies have spent on this anti-bias training. And I would say that that is done um, in the spirit of checking off the box. Like they're sold that kind of training with the promise that this will take care of the problem and it just hasn't. So I guess we always say start with the top, but in this case, you have to make sure when you start at the top, it does reach every section and every level, not just telling the manager, because that's when we might have that the clerical move and not the culture change. Exactly. You really need to, I mean, starting at the top is really, or, you know, talking to people at the top is important to kind of get them on board and to set the norms and to set the expectations around what should happen. But it really needs to be, uh, you know, a holistic effort with everyone in the company to really work together towards finding a solution. It can't just be this, you know, external training company comes in and does this one one off training and then leaves and then everything is suddenly fixed. Yeah. Communication's key, right? Yeah, absolutely. For, For sure. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Sonia. Okay, thank you. That's Sonia Kang, Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior and HR Management. Time now for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Only one traffic light from the mountains. Well, intergenerational trauma. It's a trauma that is passed down. And the lessons that black people may tell their children to try and keep them safe can be traumatizing in themselves. To talk more about this, we're joined this morning by assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at McGill University in Montreal, Myrna Lashley. Good morning, Myrna. Good morning. I'm actually in the Department of Psychiatry. Psychiatry. My apologies. Thank you so (laughs) much for your time this morning and joining us. Can you explain to us a little bit about how this intergenerational trauma would work then? Oh, well, what happens is that because of what has traditionally happened to black people and the pressure of having to cope with that, to cope with it every day in terms of systemic racism, in terms of dealing with the police, uh, racial profiling, uh, employment, uh, even just getting a place to live and being told that the place is no longer available once you get there. Yes, that still occurs. And then you, you have to prepare your children almost from the minute they're born, you start teaching them how to navigate this system. And the reason you're doing that is try, trying to protect them from what has happened to you. You're trying to protect them from the intergenerational trauma. Unfortunately, the fact of having to do that can also be a trigger for the intergenerational trauma. It's passed down in what we call epigenetics. Uh, it attaches that trauma, uh, trauma attaches itself to your genetics. It doesn't change your eyes or anything like that. But it does attach itself so it that's, gets passed down. The trauma gets passed down from one generation to the other. So when you're saying to your child, especially if you've got a a male child and a big male child, and you're saying, look, make sure that your hands are always uh, visible when the police or so mm-hmm. anyone comes around. Or when you go into a store, even if all you bought is a pack of gum, make sure that you've got that bill 
oh, never leave the store without the bill. Those are things that you have to remember to teach your kid that the kid has to remember, which can be traumatic, which really increases the, uh, the intergenerational trauma. So, Myrna, what's interesting about this is uh, obviously as parents, we want to protect our children. Um, so do we do something that's counterintuitive? Would, you know, when you talk about a black parent, would it be better or what would be the best course of action to not pass along these lessons and these thoughts? No, um, you have to pass So there's along. the issue. So this is going to happen. So how do, we, how do we aid this issue or how do we look at taking apart this intergenerational trauma and, uh, you know, um, kind of getting past it so it doesn't damage not only the child but the uh, parent for rehashing these stories? Well, therein lies the rub. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, parents will do their best to protect their children. You know, I'm going to say something that I I know a lot of people get upset about, but the fact is that this is all based on a colonial system, uh, systemic racism. It's all based on a colonial system that's been passed on. And everybody is trapped in this. It's trapped in the whiteness of the system. And when I talk about whiteness, I'm talking about an ideology rather than a person. The, the systemic racism is trapped within this ideology of whiteness. So it really, and here's the, the controversial part, is that racism is really not a problem for black people. The effects of it is what black people live, the pain of racism. But racism is a, it comes out of a colonial system, and the only people who can change that are the people who are willing to take responsibility for the privilege they've got, not not responsibility for what was done, and nobody's saying that, the responsibility for what you're living now, and help, and we work together to change it. Until that happens, black parents are going to have to continue to do what they can to protect their children. It's just normal. I mean, if you don't, then somebody's still going to get angry at you and say, well, why didn't you teach the kid how to protect himself mm-hmm. or herself? You st- I mean, it's, 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 it's a catch-22. You, you can't win this one. So, Myrna, I mean, as you say, you know, we as white people, we're not our generation now, not responsible for what happened. But are we responsible then to become the best allies we can to step up and be part of, for example, the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter protests, the movement, the, you know, being out on the street with our black brothers and sisters and trying to, you know, learn and understand is, is that where we can step in to try and stop this from continuing? But that's one of the, that's one way to do it. The other way is to do introspection and that's where it becomes very painful. Because once you do introspection and you start looking at your own privileges and you realize where did these privileges come from? Uh, how do I relinquish some of them or how do I try to, to, to equalize it? You know, we're not talking, I remember that we're not talking about equality. People get that mixed up. We're talking about equity. You know, which is a whole different ball game, and so because by what what I mean is, if you give everybody the same textbook, then you're doing e- uh, e- equality. But if the if some people can't read to begin with, mm-hmm. and you've given them the textbook, uh, they're not going to get any further. Uh, you know, the child isn't going to progress anymore. First, you have to teach the child to to read. So I think white people have to look at they they have to do the introspection. They have to do it on a personal level, and they have to do it on a communal level. They have to look at it and be aware that once you do that, you're going to probably have to church, um, challenge a lot of things that you've taken for granted, a lot of things in your heritage. Um, 
the thoughts that pop in your head? The thoughts that pop into the things that mom and dad Mm -hmm. and grandparents have taught you. And you may have to come to the decision that certain things I just cannot speak about with my parents or my grandparents. That's very painful. I understand that. But not doing that means that we continue this division and it will get wider. Because black people are now at a point where they're looking for change. And if, if white people dig in and say we are not changing, we will not look at our prejudices. We will not look more specifically at our privileges. This chasm is going to get wider and wider and people are going to go into their respective corners. And I don't know how to get people out of that once they go there. So Myrna, we've talked about intergenerational trauma. We've defined it. So from a psychiatry uh, point of view or even a psychologist uh, point of view, uh, what, how does it manifest itself? Is this come out in, as anxiety for people who have suffered this type mm-hmm. of trauma? What do you see as a professional? It, um, well, as you say, anxiety. We have higher rates of cardiovascular disorders. Um, we have a lot of anger. Uh, you have people, you, people can resort to substance abuse just to cope. Act, uh, depression is prevalent uh, because and and, the st- and it's stress because it's stress that's put on the body and the body cannot maintain a state of stress indefinitely you know the body naturally seeks homeostasis and when you can't get there one way or the other you either go down into the to the depths of uh, depression you go on the dark side or you become overly excited and that could be manifested in anger or all kinds of things so there are physical as well as emotional outgrowths of having to deal with this stress on a daily basis as i said you're looking at cardiovascular disorders and you know hypertension and those kinds of things it's a fascinating discussion and you know judging by the ignorant text we just got in obviously there's work to be done so we appreciate your time and the conversation thank you for joining us myrna Thank you for having me and have a great day. Thank you. You too. That's Myrna Lashley, assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at McGill University in Montreal. Time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. A mix of unique single-family homes, townhomes, and condos. 8-11 on the morning news. The Rideau Hall Foundation's 2020 Canada's Culture of Innovation Report sees a decline in Canadian risk tolerance. We're joined by Rideau Hall Foundation President and CEO, Teresa Marquis, with details. Good morning, Teresa. Hello, how are you? Good. Uh, thank you for taking the time this morning. Let's break this down. And when we say risk tolerance, uh, how do we mm-hmm. define that within this report? Well, you know, we're really looking at um, what the connection is between Canada's culture of innovation and, and the drivers. So what, you know, what are the key components that make up a culture? We think risk aversion and tolerance rather um, are, is, is really key to that. And I think through this report, we're seeing some, some changes or some discrepancies. Yes, we value the importance of innovation kind of in making life better. But at the same time, uh, there seems to be sort of a growing risk aversion. So a less, less likely are we to think that taking risks are is, is an important kind of factor in how do we make life better. Teresa, let's break down just a little bit about what the Rideau Hall Foundation is so that we can understand the risks you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Sure thing. So the Rideau Hall Foundation is a national charity created by the Right Honourable David Johnston 
back in 2012. And really, our focus is on building a better Canada. We do that through um, a, a large piece of work on fostering Canada's culture of innovation. Um, but thinking about innovation, you know, and how, do, how, do we, how do we foster it? How do we measure what culture is? And so we knew that there was not a lot of, of research done on, on the issue of culture. So we sought to, to kind of work with Edelman to really develop kind of a benchmark survey last year. This year marks the second kind of iteration of the, of the survey. And we're looking at different components from diversity to collaboration to risk tolerance, creativity, curiosity, and kind of openness to technology. So do we blame the pandemic on mm-hmm. uh, this, uh, this lower value? Well, it's quite interesting. We actually went out into the field with this research, again, because it is an annual survey. We went out just prior to COVID, so in sort of mid-February. Certainly, so much of the world has changed uh, since that time, and that's kind of an interesting uh, piece of the conversation here. So if we look at the, the survey results, I think it's clear that lots might have changed uh, since, since the time we did the survey. Um, for instance, the survey really showed us that all institutions across the country were seen as lagging in innovation, with the exception of business. So business was seen as really the only sort of sector of our, of our society uh, that, that is less risk, less risk averse, that is kind of driving a culture of innovation. But across government, education, uh, healthcare, these were all institutions that were seen as lagging. I think through COVID, it's become clear that we're seeing actually how a number of our other institutions, business certainly among them, but we've seen government kind of pivot. We've seen education uh, in particular really respond to, to how learning has to happen and to just act in, in kind of different different ways. So, so I think it's, it's pretty clear that, that loss may have changed uh, since mid-February. And when you talk about this innovation, are we talking about being digitally literate and, and mm-hmm. you know, changes, you know, with doctors, for example, through mm-hmm. this pandemic? We've seen doctors be able to communicate with patients without them being face-to-face. Is this an example? That's absolutely an example. You know, if you, if you break it down, it's really about how can we, what, what are changes that we can make in our daily lives to make things better? It's, about a, it's really about a mindset when we're talking about culture. How can we just do things? They're going to make life better for all of us. I think technology is one piece of it, how we learn, how we access information, uh, how we simplify uh, things to make, to make progress better for us all. So certainly we're seeing a lot of it in technology. We're seeing a lot of it in medical innovation. We're seeing a lot of it in education. Teresa, does uh, risk tolerance change depending on how old you are? Did you dig into that with the research? It's quite interesting. I think we're seeing that younger Canadians are more risk tolerant. We are seeing a bit of a gap um, in, in, in that with older generations. Um, but, but I think that's an area we really want to dig into a bit further uh, going forward. How does this report really affect us? You know, if you can kind of break it down and, and how does it affect Canadians in general day to day? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's, it's really about sort of how do we value innovation in our daily lives? You know, I think as Canadians, we're, we have, you know, we, we certainly pride ourselves on innovation, but we don't really talk a lot about it. We don't really celebrate it. And that comes back to sort of a key piece of work by the Rideau Hall Foundation to celebrate innovation culture, to help bring innovation into classrooms um, at an earlier age, to help connect innovators and kind of promote innovation between sectors, between regions of the country. If we celebrate it, if we teach it, if we talk about it, uh, hopefully, you know, that will lead to changes in how we kind of embrace it and embrace our own responsibility for innovating, again, back in our daily lives. So a report like this from the Rideau Hall Foundation, uh, do you hope that it just opens up the conversation or is there going to be a process and steps to maybe implement a change to bring these percentages up? 
Well, you know, I think it'll take a couple of years, more than a couple of years, to see how these, these measures are changing uh, year over year. We're only in year two. Um, but the goal is at this point, you know, let's start the conversation. Let's make sure that we're looking at innovation, that we're valuing it, that we're talking about it, and that we're celebrating it. Great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us this morning to talk about the report. Thanks so much. Bye now. Bye-bye. That's Teresa Marquez, who is the Rideau Hall Foundation President and CEO. 817 helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Enjoy established amenities, recreation facilities, and the leading school districts. Coming up on 819, the province is looking into the creation of a corps of civilians who might help support the police. This is a private member's motion. And it's got a lot of people talking. It's it's talking about the role of citizen policing in Alberta. And I think it's more a rural issue than, you know, an urban issue, of course. But there is a motion. Uh, The UCP MLA is leading the government to explore involving more civilians in law enforcement. So it's a motion that passed on Monday. And it's looking at options for voluntary civilian corps to uh, assist law enforcement in our province. To your point there, Stats Canada shows the crime rate in rural Alberta 38% higher than in urban areas of the province. And I'm not, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I, I think this has switched and changed over the years because before you live out in the country, you know your neighbors, you're not so concerned, but more and more we're seeing these increasing incidents and Stats Canada has a... And a lack of police in, you know, out in those rural areas, distance, not right? able to get there quick enough if they are called. So I'm sure there are a lot of rural folks who would think this is a great idea. And of course, you know, the person who uh, who brought it forward, Todd Lowen is his name. He uh, represents the rural riding of Central Peace Notley. And he says, you know, the next steps are up to the minister, but what he's talking about is an unarmed local residents corps working side by side with police in low risk activities to reduce crime. The, I mean, the drawback you got to think about yeah. is sort of, you know, vigilante justice. And I'm sure that's not the intent of the person who put it forward, yeah. but that's likely what could potentially happen. That, yeah, absolutely. We'll hear more about this moving ahead. Right now, we've got our guest on the line here and a special analysis of national security <coughs> reports by Global News suggests that Canada is a permissive target for China's broad interference campaigns. Global News reporter Sam Cooper dug into these reports and uh, has expert assessments for us as well. He's going to be bringing details uh, to the forefront uh, on. Good morning to you, Sam. Good morning. Uh, What did you find uh, looking at this issue? What we found is that uh, China has been very successful in undermining Canada through an influence and uh, espionage network that they call the United Front. And really how it works is they, they have been targeting powerful influencers in business, politics, various institutions in Canada. It's a strategy that uh, the experts call elite capture. And really, it's all about money. Uh, China offers uh, access to its markets. It offers sweet, uh, sweet business deals, sometimes to former politicians. And uh, the result is that uh, people end up advocating for China's foreign policy inside of Canada sometimes without revealing their their business ties with China. So we could hear in the case of uh, Huawei executive Mun Wanzhou, for example, possibly people advocating China's position that she be released. And uh, so really when we boil it down, the experts say Canada's democratic values are being undermined through this covert campaign that's all about really buying influence in democratic countries. 
Sam, I think if you ask people, they'd say, you know, we definitely think there's an interference from China in the U.S., but maybe not so much in Canada. But obviously it is an issue. And your report shows Australia is a really good model we could be looking at for fighting this kind of interference. So what did you find? Absolutely. You know, on your first point, uh, you're right. Most Canadians don't... uh, really have an idea of how broad the campaign against Canada is and why Canada is a permissive and attractive target. Uh, experts tell us really it is because China wants the access to their their biggest rival, the United States, who's right on our border. That's why Canada makes a good strategic target in Australia, another great strategic target, because, as you know, Canada is part of the Western Five Eyes Alliance. China is trying to split off any weak link that they can find. Uh, Canada and Australia, very similar societies, but Australia is years ahead in detecting this threat. Uh, what they found were serious cases. I'll give you one example. An Australian senator was found to be advocating China's military policy through corruption. Uh, there was a United Front leader, a billionaire real estate developer and casino high roller that, that was offering major, major donations to all parties. In this case, he threatened to withdraw $400,000 in funds if this senator didn't advocate China's policy. So that's major corruption. When it was revealed, Australia took action in 2018, new national security laws, Uh, You need to register if you're doing any business with China. And uh, if you're found to be hiding that business and working for China, essentially, you could go to jail for 10 to 20 years. Mm. That's the the tough changes Australia has has taken. And the experts say already they're seeing improvements in transparency and, and accountability in that country. Sam, thank you for bringing us details on the report. We appreciate it. Thank you. That is Sam Cooper, National Online Investigative Journalist. Thank you for listening to the morning news. Sue DL, Andrew Schultz with you coming up at 919. We'll get to your texts. Lots of texts coming in all morning long. Text line's always open for you. 403-974-8255. And in just a moment, the EU is discussing reopening its borders and U.S. citizens could remain barred. We'll check in with Redmond Shannon in the U.K. next. Time now for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Main streets highlight 20-foot sidewalks and integrated bike paths. There is a huge multi-vehicle collision impacting Elbow Drive at Glenmore Trail through the southwest. They are just moving the vehicles off to the right shoulder right now, but you can still expect a northbound right lane closure as well as a westbound left lane closure and a complete closure from the uh, westbound to northbound exit ramp onto Elbow Drive. So lots of emergency crews on scene in this area. Allow yourself a couple of extra minutes to get through. Southbound Elbow Drive, though, running delay and problem-free all the way down towards Southland. Also want to watch out for lane closures continuing today on 14th Street southbound between 75th Avenue and 90th Avenue Southwest. They'll be in place until 3. The source is Red Tag Sales on now. Shop amazing tech deals on the latest smartwatches, headphones, laptops, and more. Shop now, the source, and the source.ca. For the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. Nine oh eight on the morning news. The European Commission, the executive arm of the EU, suggested earlier this month that European nations should open their internal borders by June 15th and slowly lift the travel ban on foreign visitors by uh, July 1. With the latest on the reopening of European borders, we're joined by Redmond Shannon, Global News Europe correspondent. Good morning to you, Redmond. Good morning, Andrew. 
Well, the travel restriction has been extended three times from what we're hearing, uh, but now due to end early next week, what are you hearing? Are openings going to move ahead? Well, we're hearing a number of things about what criteria the European Union is going to use. So they're debating that today, and it's going to be very important to see what criteria they do use, because that will let us know if on July 1st, on Canada Day, that Canadians will be um, among the nationalities added to a so-called safe list of uh, non-EU countries that can then travel to the EU as, as things stand. Canadians can't really travel to almost any countries in the EU um, because of COVID-19 pandemic and obviously the the reverse is true too. But uh, the European Union, because uh, it is uh, peak tourism season here, there's a lot of pressure to open up the borders, get people in. So many Canadians will have planned trips to Europe this summer and they've had to be scrapped well maybe some of them could still go to head but there may be if, if even if they can there could be under strict uh, rules and regulations about how you come in and, and how you quarantine so really what the European Union are reportedly looking at is how many new cases a country has reported and registered over the past two weeks and if if that number is as reported um, it looks like Canada will fall below the that marker, meaning Canada would be added to a safe countries list. But there's a number of other factors to come in as well as how, how much do countries test and, you know, if a, if a number of new cases is quite low, well, it may be that because certain countries don't test enough or don't have a, a rigorous testing um, regime. So there's a number of factors that come into play. But one thing that seems for sure is that the likes of the US and Brazil and uh, Russia and some other countries where the virus uh, has shown no signs of slowing down um, won't be added to a safe list. But uh, Canada is sort of on the edge of what that number looks like it could be. So we might not know until the end of this week, but it looks like um, travelers might be able to get that answer pretty soon. Great news for Canadians for sure, Redmond. But I mean, boy, when you talk about safe, you, you don't you don't look at the United States in the same light for sure with the numbers that we just keep seeing increasing. It's no doubt the EU doesn't want Americans flying there yet. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the number of new infections in, in the U.S. Uh, continue, is, is rising again as the number of states open up. Obviously, it's different in different states. It's, let's see, the other headache, of course, but countries are being treated as one when it comes to, comes to this. So it doesn't matter if someone's coming from New York or L.A. or Wyoming, they're going to be treated as Americans. And the, the overall uh, new case rate in the U.S. is uh, in the region of about six, seven, eight times as much as it is in Canada per head of population that is so uh, obviously way way above the Canadian level but even per capita it's above that as are Russia and Brazil and countries like that so um, if, if the the level as being reported is uh, is chosen that is 16 new cases per 100,000 people over the last two weeks Canada just falls below that at about 14 mm. with my basic math that I've been looking at <laughs> uh, over the, this morning. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. If they come out of this meeting today and say that's the level, Canada looks good. But if they choose a lower level or there are other criteria in there, then maybe when they announce this safe list later in the week, who knows what the answer could be.
Now, when we talk about these travel bans internally within the EU, is, is this uh, strictly flights, or does this include, uh, you know, uh, vehicular travel between the countries within the EU as it stands right now? Well, within the EU, for the most part, people can travel um, with it, and the internal borders of the EU have been mostly opened up over the past uh, about, uh, it was nine days ago, um, and that's the case. Um, so there, but anyone coming in from the EU's external borders, say driving, say from um, shall we say Russia into Latvia, for example, or or from Nor Norway actually would be considered part of the EU, but let's say from Turkey into Bulgaria, these borders are being treated like airport borders too when it comes to people trying to get get in. So yeah, the European Union's external borders for the 27 countries pretty much closed since the start of the virus. The only exception is uh, Ireland, where Canadians could technically travel to, um, but have to quarantine themselves for two weeks. That's because Ireland borders the UK, which of course is no longer in the EU, mm -hmm. but is sort of considered part of the EU. So Ireland sort of goes along, has to go along with what the UK does in certain circumstances. That complicates things further. So if you're traveling from the UK to France, um, um, or vice versa, there are quarantine regulations right now that are, that are are considered too. So it, it keeps changing week to week, and it becomes very confusing. So if you anyone who's planning trips within Europe or from outside of Europe into Europe, you really have to keep an eye on things as they change week on week. And the European Union, whatever it decides this week, it looks like it will change though that safe list every two weeks. So if things take off in Canada again, Canada could be taken off the list. Mm. So something people really really have to keep an eye on. Redmond, curious, you know, is this all about the numbers or could there be some politics involved too? I mean, for the EU to say, uh, nope, uh, looking at the numbers, Americans will not be allowed in. Does that risk agitating the presidents, for example? Well, um, it's all political in many ways because uh, as President Donald Trump said a few days ago, he once uh, recommended that the number of tests in the US be reduced so that the case numbers be reduced and that's a political decision. So it's a political decision influencing the numbers. So when that happens, it does become political. Now the US has issued uh, a ban on Europeans traveling to the United States since March and uh, that remains in place. But obviously, if the US is left off this so-called safe list, you can only imagine that uh, Donald Trump will uh, at the very least tweet about it. Um, so that will be something to keep an eye out for. And the EU has very um, difficult relationships with, uh, with Russia too. And that's something that they will have to consider for sure. But uh, with the case numbers in those two countries, it's going to be difficult to see those being added to the safe list anytime soon. I'm just going to throw a general question out there for you because we were hearing yesterday that Germany is under a second lockdown due to some high rates of incidence of, of new cases. Uh, how, uh, if you could put it in a nutshell, uh, how is the whole union doing as far as any hotspots or is, is everybody pretty much on the same page without, with the exception of a case in, uh, in Germany there? Oh, I think it it, very, it does vary a lot, um, but the European Union, by its very nature, wants to try and harmonise things. But, yeah, that case in Germany is quite shocking. 1,500 employees at a meat packing plant um, were test, tested positive. So they locked down basically that the entire region around that town where that meat processing plant is. There are little hotspots here and there. Sweden, 
within the European Union. Its numbers are not looking fantastic right now, but certain other parts of, of the European Union, more isolated parts like Spanish islands, holiday islands, are, are pretty much free of the virus with a, an odd exception or two. So it does vary hugely and that becomes very difficult for the EU when it tries to harmonize its borders with an open border policy as it normally has. In order to keep that intact, it, it's it's very tricky when you're trying to say, no, Americans, you can't come in, but then there's a hot spot in one European country where things are arguably just as bad. So it's it, it definitely is political and, and that's something to watch out for. Thank you so much for the update, Redmond. Maybe we'll be able to visit you from Canada soon. Yeah, that'd be great. Have a great day, Sue. You too. Appreciate your time. That's Redmond Shannon, Global News Europe correspondent. 9.17, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, Calgary's last and best master plan community inside the Stony Trail Ring Road. Emergency crews are still cleaning up a collision from northbound Elbow Drive over top of Glenmore Trail. That right lane remains blocked off. There are quite a few vehicles involved in this one, and they are currently off onto the right shoulder waiting for tow trucks. So those westbound lane closures that we were seeing have now reopened. We also have reports of a collision on Glenmore Trail further east as you make your way out towards Deerfoot. Not seeing any major delays from that, though. And on the uh, southwest portion of Glenmore Trail, construction has started up at 37th Street, so we are seeing delays there in both directions. New Popeye's Buffalo Ranch tenders are here. Three delicious Popeye's tenders drizzled in Buffalo Ranch sauce and served with a regular side and biscuit for just $6.99. For the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Freddie Howard.